Oh, Lord, our Lord. We come from a race of rebels. We are no different than Adam. We would have eaten that fruit. We would have thrown you down if we could. We are not nice people with bad moments. We are sinful people with wicked hearts. We come to you denying none of our sin, but claiming all of Christ's righteousness. In him, we are a part of the sinless race. In him, we didn't take the fruit. In him, we are at this very moment at the right hand of your throne. It would be a sad world without Christ. It would be a dark world without Christ. Thank you for sending the light, the second Adam. For some of our people, it's been a good week. And they come to the text with smiles. But for some of our people, it's been a really painful week. And they come to the text with tears. But in either case, they are both coming to your text. Please meet your people in your word. This doesn't have to be a sermon in which they remember for the rest of their lives. But it has to be a sermon in which they meet with you. God, do the impossible. Do what's impossible for my stammering lips and my feeble words to do. Blow on this text and make it live. Make the text sweet to the people. I do find comfort in knowing that I'm not the only teacher of this text this morning. The Holy Spirit teaches us this text. Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ more clearly, love Him more deeply, follow Him more obediently, cling to Him more desperately, and proclaim Him more faithfully. This is our corporate plea. Amen. 2 Samuel 7 is a monumental chapter. It's one of the most crucial chapters in the Old Testament. If there were a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament chapters, this would be on it. It's a jewel. In fact, John Woodhouse, the Australian, who wrote the gold standard commentary on 2 Samuel, says, and I quote, in this chapter are the most important words spoken in the entire Old Testament. End quote. That's a bit of an overstatement, but this chapter is key to understanding the flow of God's redemptive history. This section is theologically stout. However, all that theology is given to us through a narrative. When God wants to drop big theology on his people, he does it by weaving it in a narrative. So to neglect the narrative and just teach the beefed up theology would be inconsistent with how God wants you to discover that theology. And just plain prideful that you have a better way of packaging this theological truth than God does. So I am going to walk through the story in its entirety and come back and deal with the theological implications at the end. Narrative has a way of sneaking up on you and staying with you. Story has a way of putting theology in real life, through real life, for real life. This deep theology isn't for the classroom. It's for the narrative, for the story, for your story, for your narrative. If you are someone that's struggling with loneliness, 
This text reaches out and hugs you. It assures you of God's love. If you're someone desiring to do something for God, this text reaches out and instructs you. If you're someone needing assurance of your salvation, this text grants that assurance. If you're someone struggling to understand what faith is, you just can't grasp it. This text walks it out for you. And I will get to all of that, but not until the end. At the end, I'll show you how to walk this out in your life. In the narrative, there are certain high points, certain moments that stand out above all the others. Here are the moments. A king with architectural plans, a prophet with trash cans, a god with genealogy trees, a man brought to his knees. A king with architectural plans, a prophet with trash cans, a god with genealogy trees, a man brought to his knees. You'll see each of those as we encounter them in the story. But let's start the story. Verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house. Let's stop here. <laughs> David, at one time, was a fugitive. He didn't have a house. He ran from the law. He was homeless. But, it, but, but that seems like a distant memory now. Today, David is in his house. It's a newly built house. It still has the new carpet smell. Hiram gave David the building materials and the workers. This is a palace, a big one, a structure big enough to symbolize the strength of David's kingdom. It was built with the highest quality materials, cedar. It was built by the most gifted artisans, carpenters, and masons around. It's by far the, the grandest and most impressive building in Jerusalem. The cedar walls made it incredibly fragrant. In modern equivalent, this is a billionaire's home. A billionaire's home. There's an epic wine cellar in the basement. There's a full spa, indoor waterfall, a bowling alley, gold toilets, an elevator, indoor-outdoor pool, heated bathroom floors, a heated driveway, a 20-car garage with a Lamborghini, a Ferrari, and a... And a Tesla S in it. David's servants are, are running all over the property like ants answering to his every beck and call. David had wealth, but he never desired wealth. He only desired to please the Lord. Verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, it's a big one, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. David is in his palace at rest. Now that's something we haven't seen of David. He always seems to be doing something. Feeding sheep, fighting Philistines, running for his life, writing psalms, moving the ark, addressing the nation, administering affairs of the kingdom. He's an energetic man. But for the first time in his life, he's at rest. He finally has leisure. Even when you look at the pace of the narrative in 2 Samuel, it slows to a crawl here. David has respite, a breather. There are no battles to fight, no enemy approaching. The nation is at rest. A time of peace, a brief interlude where the military situation is, is stable. David's head is no longer on a swivel. He's flourishing. In fact, the whole nation is flourishing. Everyone is enjoying rest. Everyone is enjoying prosperous days. Every Israelite had two donkeys in the garage and a roast beef in the oven. David, the king of Israel, sits down with Nathan, the pastor of Israel, Israel's prophet. And they're having a nice cup of tea. That's what you do in a palace. You have a proper cup of Earl Grey tea. They're at the table having a Torah Bible study. Maybe out of Exodus 26. 
Nathan talking, David listening. Nathan expositing, and David feasting. Perhaps Nathan began teaching by saying, King David, God's people escaped Egyptian bondage and were fugitives on the run for a time. You know what that's like, don't you, David? Israel would be a mobile people, packing up and moving all the time. David, two million ragtag slaves, spending the next 40 years camping out. But God wanted his people to know as they were traveling through life, he is with them. What's the best way to do that? I'll set my tent right in the middle of their tents. God gives the tabernacle details to Moses here in Exodus 26. And they construct the tent, the tabernacle. And they place the Ark of the Covenant in it. God went camping with his people. My people don't have fixedness. So I don't either. You know this, David, but that's the same ark you brought out of storage last week. God is still in a tent, camping with his people, 500 years later. Then suddenly David sets his cup down on the saucer and says, Preacher, I've been thinking about something. Verse 2. And David the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. <laughs> Nathan, look at me sitting here with my feet up in a luxurious house. Then David pauses, stands, begins walking toward the window. He looks down and he sees a tent made of badger skin. Then he finishes his sentence. And the ark of God is in shabby curtains. I'm surrounded by extravagant luxuries in this house, but God's ark is in a pop-up tent. This needs to be rectified. Something must be done about this. The people of God aren't on a move anymore. We aren't living in tents anymore. Why is God still in a tent? I'm living in plush surroundings and he's in crude curtains. I'm living in greater luxury than God. No eastern storm could destroy my house, but a gust of wind could carry his flimsy house away. I'm in a permanent dwelling, but God is not. David says, Nathan, I know what it's like to be on the run for a long time. And not to have a permanent dwelling place. God's been on the move. But now he's stationary. We don't need to say move with us anymore. We need to say stay with us. So here's my holy ambition pastor. I want to build the Lord a house. You can almost see David clearing off the table, calling for the royal architects to get started. King Hiram will, will float me down some more cedars. I'll ask for the same artisans, carpenters, and masons that did my house. He, he, he calls over his royal general contractor, go out there, break ground. I want the temple facing this way. Verse 3, and Nathan said to the king, go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The pastor of Israel, the prophetic voice of God to David during his reign says, Sounds like a great idea. Go for it. Nathan's immediate response is to encourage David. I want to commend his holy ambition. I'm enthusiastic about God, what about what God has put in your heart to do for him. The king of Israel and the pastor of Israel were good friends. Nathan and David were very close. David even named one of his sons after Nathan. They regularly met and regularly searched the Torah together. This Bible study wasn't a one-off event. That day, the Bible study ended. They rolled the scroll up. Nathan left and returned home. David continued planning. A king 
with architectural plans. Later that night, David could not fall asleep. He was filled with such excitement. Dreaming of plans of what he will accomplish for God's glory. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. <laughs> Apparently, when Nathan crawled into bed that night, he fell fast asleep. He had discipled the king, spiritually advised the king. He put in a good, long, hard day's work. And now, he's cutting logs. Loud. Snoring like a grandpa snores. Then an audible voice. Nathan! He jumps up, his hair sticking up in five different directions, his breath smelling like a dragon. He reaches for his glasses. Yes, Lord. God speaks. Verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? The question implies the answer. He continues, verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, David, I don't need a physical address. And I'm not impressed with your cedar walls, your gold toilets, and your bowling alley. All this time I've moved about in nothing but a tent. Not because no one would build me a house, but because I didn't need a house. Have I lobbied any of my people for a temple? During the 40-year period in the wilderness, I didn't command anyone to build me a house. During the 400-year period of the judges, I didn't command any one of them to build me a house. During the 40-year reign of Saul, did I ask any of the elders of the 12 tribes to build me a house? Where did you come up with the idea that I would want a house and that you would be the one that would build it for me? There's a certain playfulness in God's words here. God doesn't need David. And he's never needed a house. He hasn't been lobbying for one. Skip to verse 17. And you say, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> Sounds like cursing coming from me. We'll cover every verse we skipped. Verse 17. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, how did that go? Nathan goes to the palace. He's granted entrance. He's escorted to the king's outdoor meeting on the roof of the gigantic house. Nathan, it's nice to see you. Exodus 27 today, right? I've already got my scroll open to it. Hey, uh, king, there's really something I need to tell you. Uh, that can wait, preacher. Look over here. See that? We've already broken ground. That's going to be the outline of, of God's temple. We're pouring footer tomorrow as soon as the, the dirt work is finished. Uh, king, I really need to speak with you about this. Well, you may proceed, Nathan. God appeared to me last night, David, and he wanted me to bring you these two trash cans. This is where he wants you to put those architectural plans. A king with architectural plans. A prophet with trash cans. But Nathan, you gave me two thumbs up on this project. I know, king. But there is a difference between the reasoning of a godly man and the word of God. God's word came to me last night and he said to stop this building project. God has withdrawn the building permit. Now church, what is happening here? God says, David, this is not a task I have for you. It's, it's a holy ambition, a commendable desire, 
We know this project, as we will see later, is only tabled, not destroyed. It will happen. It was just not determined for David to do it. David obeyed the command of God and he stopped the bulldozers. All the people in, in yellow hard hats, he sent home. David, even though he had it in even though he had his heart set on building the temple, David knew better a tent of God's appointing than a temple of his own inventing. God continues to instruct the prophet Nathan on what to tell David, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. <laughs> David, I brought you out of the farm, and I put you on the throne. I did that. You didn't do that. I chose you. You didn't choose this. Let me remind you who is really writing this story. You're not an active initiator, but a passive recipient. I wanted a shepherd, not a builder. Take your hard hat off and pick up your shepherd's staff. My people don't need a builder. They need a shepherd. Verse 8 is my, is my favorite. You know what's dropping, what, what's dripping from verse 8? Grace. So much grand and glorious grace. God takes David back, back to Bethlehem where he found him. He reminds David of experienced grace. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. That, friends, is experienced grace. Now, God will give David promised grace. Grace behind you, grace in front of you, grace abounding, grace surrounding. Verse 9b, and I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. David, I've made you great in Israel, but I'm going to make you great in the entire world. I'm going to make you famous. You're going to be ranked among the great names of the earth. Verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that, mark these words, the Lord will make you a house. This is the kindest, sweetest no you will ever hear. <laughs> David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. <laughs> oh, yo, yo, you thought you were going to build me a house. That's cute. No, actually, I'm wearing the hard hat. And I'm going to be building you a house. David responds, but God, I, I already have a house. It's a palace. You've seen my heated driveway. No snow piles on it. And you know how often it snows in the Middle East. <laughs> God says, I'm not talking about a house of cedar, David. I'm talking about a dynasty. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. A king with architectural plans, a prophet with trash cans, a god with genealogy trees. God says, I will give you a child, your own flesh and blood. He'll rule after you and he will build me a house. Solomon, David's son, will years later build the temple and there will be no more tent. A parallel account in 1 Chronicles gives us the reason David was not allowed to build God's house. He had shed much blood. God wanted a man of peace, not a man of war to build his house. God says, see this little fella in your genealogy tree, David? See this little fella hanging from your genealogy tree? 
Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. I like this. When this son of yours does wrong, I will discipline him because I'm a father to him and he's a son to me. I will not treat him like I did Saul. I will treat him like a son. One of the marks of a good father is discipline. And God says, I will time after time rescue this boy by discipline. When he swerves, I will chastise him. I love that promise. God is telling David, sin can't destroy this promise. Your boy, sin can't destroy my promise to him. God is going to set covenant love on this son and he will never remove it from him. God says, neither death, sin, or time will stop my commitment to you. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. My love will never be taken away from this boy in the tree as it was taken away from Saul. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David, your throne will always be here. Rock solid. There, there's a word play on house throughout the chapter. House occurs 15 times. And there's a pun. A play on words. David is in a house, which is a palace with bedrooms and a kitchen. David wants to build God a house, which is a temple, a place of worship. And God says, you will not build me a house, I will build you a house, which is a dynasty, a family tree that will last forever. Three meanings for the same word house. House with a kitchen and bedrooms, house that is a temple, house that is a dynasty, a never-ending family tree. God promises to build for David a royal dynasty that will not be cut short. Saul's dynasty was cut short, but not this one. In fact, 1 Samuel 13, Samuel rebuked Saul and said, Your house, your dynasty, will not endure. David receives the exact opposite promise here. Your house will last forever. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David marveled at God's past grace, which brought him to the throne. Then he marveled at God's future grace, giving him a dynasty that lasts forever. Now he marvels at God's sovereign grace. This is a man who is brought to his knees. What dropped David to his knees? Grace. This man with enormous privileges is humbled. It appears David went into the tent the tabernacle, the place that housed the ark, and there he communed with God. He went in and took his place before God, before the ark. God is enthroned on the ark. King David is before the true throne. How does a mere mortal respond to such magnificent outpouring of God's grace? David is awestruck. God's grace wrecked him in a good way. He's basking in grace. He's expressing a deep sense of amazement. David sat. This could be the single most important act he ever did. Calvin said, As if preserving David from a thousand deaths was altogether too trivial, 
Yahweh had committed himself to a forever promise regarding David's dynasty. What is my house? I, I, I am not worthy of this. David acknowledges the Lord's goodness to his family. And you could summarize David's entire prayer in three words. Who am I? This is David's Isaiah moment. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Abraham had a moment like this. Describing himself as nothing but dust and ashes. David had more wives than a Mormon. He didn't deserve this. He's an unworthy man. He spends time reflecting on all that God has done for him personally. And he sat to do it. A.W. Pink says, There is nothing like a sense of God's sovereign, free, and rich grace to melt the soul, humble the heart, and stir you unto true and acceptable worship. That's what's happening to David. A king with architectural plans, a prophet with trash cans, a god with genealogy trees, a man brought to his knees. Verse 19. And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what, David speaking, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David is speaking about his own speechlessness. He confesses the inadequacy of human words to appropriately respond to this grace. What can I possibly say in the face of all this? Eight times from verse 18 to verse 29, David uses a special name to address his God. It only occurs here and nowhere else in the book. O Lord God, which means my master Yahweh. It's juxtaposed with the title David gives himself, your servant David. My master Yahweh, your servant David. Verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God besides you. God has shown himself incomparable. There is no one like him. This is said by Moses, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Jeremiah. On the regular, God's people say to him, you are incomparable. You are without equal. You are matchless. David stands astonished at who God is. Verse 25. And now, O oh Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. David moves from, from praise to petition here. Master Yahweh, you've spoken this bounty to your servant. Please bring it to pass. Verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you for you, catch this, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, for you have made this revelation to your servant saying I will build you a house. Now let's pause here. God, since you did this, I'll do this. That's the logic of this verse. God, since you did this, I will do, do this. Since you revealed that you will build me a house, notice the end of verse 27, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. What gave David the courage to pray this prayer? God's promise to him. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. David is praying God's word back to God. This chapter gives, gives insight into how prayer works. 
Moses prayed for God to remember the promise to Abraham. Nehemiah prayed for God to remember the promise to Moses. Daniel read Jeremiah's promise and it prompted him to pray for the release from captivity. David and these three men all prayed God's word back to him. Praying the Bible. My wife just finished a a book on praying the Bible. Puritan William Gurnall said, Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed. Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed. Because you've promised it, I have courage to pray it. Promises must be prayed over. I don't think that landed on you. Promises must be prayed over. Prayer pleads promises. Not only do you have instruction about prayer here, but you have instruction about faith. And some of you struggle to understand what faith is. Faith is promise believing. Faith is promise believing. You, like David, hear it and believe it. Faith is promise believing. Those of you struggling with the assurance of your salvation, David wasn't saying, Oh, I'm not sure I can trust this promise. I'm not sure he means this promise for me. No. David simply rested in God's promise. What an insult it would have been to God for David to say, I'm not sure I believe your promise. Friend, he has spoken that he will keep you. Believe his promise. Now let's bring this narrative to our front porch with some applications. I have, I don't know how many I have to be honest with you. It's it's a lot, but we'll find out together. Application. Application number one, an application for the lonely. An application for the lonely. The Lord's willingness and desire to dwell among his people should be celebrated. The Lord's willingness and desire to dwell among his people should be celebrated. God traveled with his people through their topsy-turvy here and there wilderness journeys. He moved from place to place tabernacling with them. This tabernacle, this tent, could have fit in this auditorium many times over. It wasn't grand. It wasn't glorious. God dwelled in a place smaller than this auditorium. But that wasn't the only time God came to live in a tent. Two times in the Bible, it describes the body as a tent. When Jesus Christ took on human flesh, he again tabernacled with his people. He camped with his people, tented with them in human flesh. He is the with us God. David, David, you're trying quickly to get me out of the tent. But beloved, I'm coming again in a tent of human flesh because I want to be among my people. To the single, to the single adult who who desires to be married, to the married who have a distant spouse, physically distant or emotionally distant, to the widow who feel like you're marginalized, to the children of divorce who long for a parent they can't be close to anymore, to the lost in the crowd, those surrounded by people every day, yet you lack intimate connections you so long for. To those who desire friendships that you do not have. To the lonely Christian, this text reminds us that you are not alone, ever. God the Holy Spirit tabernacles in you. Next, an application for the driven. This one has hit me hard this week. What you want to accomplish for God may not be what he wants you to accomplish. What you want to accomplish for God may not be what he wants you to accomplish. David didn't like being still. He couldn't stand a spare minute. He felt like he always must be accomplishing something. He didn't like times of rest. So the moment things slowed down, he thought, 
I need to do something great for God. Matthew Henry said, Gracious, grateful souls never think they can do enough for God. David's desire to build a temple was not a sinful desire. It was a good thing. God did want a temple built, but not by David. David had an all-consuming fire to see God glorified. He cared more about God's house than his own. That's a good thing. Are you more concerned about God's house than your own? David, he's a godly man with a religious initiative denied. It's possible for God's people to set their heart on something that God has not intended for them to do. We may have plans for God's work that aren't his plans. Do you really want his plans? Or do you just want God to, to come and work in your plans? I'm not desiring to curb any enthusiasm. But I think this may help some of you not have shattered ambitions. God could say to you, not yet. Paul desired to go to Rome, but consistently heard, not yet. He did go to Rome at the end of his life. I want to be in the ministry. Not yet. I want to get a new job. Not yet. I want to move to another state. Not yet. I want to have a baby. It's a good and glorifying thing. Not yet. God could say not yet, or he could say not you. The temple will be built, but that's not your job, David. Well, well, I want to start a ministry, lead a group, build a big building for God. All holy ambitions, but may not be God's plans for you. We each have our own place in the plan of God. Different roles for different people. Application for the theologically astute. Study the Davidic covenant. Love the covenant maker. I titled this sermon the Davidic covenant but have not mentioned those words one time in the sermon. The word covenant does not appear in this passage. But this text is often referred to as the Davidic covenant. It's universally recognized as such. The absence of the word does not mean the absence of the concept. There's covenant theology, terminology used throughout. In fact, later in, in Psalms 89 verse 3, it, it refers back to this chapter. And it calls what takes place in this chapter as a covenant. What is a covenant? It's a binding agreement between two parties. It provides structure to the relationship. This chapter highlights the divine side of that covenant. God has chosen to bind himself by an oath. God has stamped, I will, on every line of this chapter. John Piper calls God's covenants his self-written job descriptions. His self-written job descriptions. But how does God's promise to David... How does God's covenant to David 3,000 years ago have any impact on your today and your tomorrow? In fact, it seems very Jewish-centric. And I'm not a Jew. The Bible calls me a Gentile. How does God's promise to the Jews have any impact on me? Do Gentiles benefit from the Davidic covenant? Yes. Because from that one family produced a savior for all the families of the earth. Both Jew and Gentile. Now, D Davidic, Davidic covenant, there, there's a temptation for expositors to make more of the covenant than the covenant maker. Talk of the promise instead of the promiser. Some of my Presbyterian brothers whom I absolutely love, they do this unintentionally. Talks so much about the covenant. Who, who made that? Oh yeah, the covenant maker. We don't want to glory in the covenant. We want to glory in the covenant maker. And the covenant fulfiller. 
which leads us to our next application. Application for the doubting. Rest assured, Jesus Christ sits on David's throne. The Davidic covenant is not just a promise of succession, but a promise of salvation. This is a watershed prophecy. There are strong messianic overtones throughout. D.A. Carson points out that, that it's a double prophecy. It's called telescoping. It was pointing to Solomon and through Solomon to the Savior. Near and future events are viewed together. Tertullian, I know many of you have been reading him this week. He was an African church father who lived about 150 years after Christ. Tertullian said, if you tell me 2 Samuel 7 is just about Solomon, you will make me into a fit of laughter. <laughs> You're going to send me into a fit of laughter. Who's on David's throne today? Jesus. In Luke 1.32, the angel Gabriel told Mary, you will conceive and bear a son and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Because I thought his father was Jesus. Jesus is the, Joseph, Jesus is the true son of David, referred to in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is on that genealogy tree. Jesus preached himself from 2 Samuel 7, at least on three occasions that I found. At least on three occasions, Jesus opened up to 2 Samuel 7 and he says, This is me. I am the son who will rule forever. I'll, I'll give you the three. Jesus claimed he would build a temple that could not be destroyed. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Mark 15, John 2. Secondly, Jesus claimed to possess an eternal throne. Matthew 19, the third time he preached himself from this text, he claimed to possess an imperishable kingdom, Luke 22 and John 18. The gospel writers give you extensive genealogies to demonstrate that Jesus is the descendant of David, that he is the proper heir to the throne. For the New Testament writers, the primary application of the Davidic covenant was to Jesus. Matthew 1.1. That's how they preached it. The gospel writers are telling us, unless you understand David, you can't understand Jesus. What happens in 2 Samuel 7 is alluded to either explicitly or implicitly by both Peter and Paul. When, when Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he has in mind 2 Samuel 7.14. He say, yeah, but Kyle, let me, just, let me just push back on you a bit. You say that David's dynasty would last forever. The text says it multiple times. Is that just rhetorical flourish? Is that hyperbole? <laughs> Studies have shown that most dynasties only last for 100 years. That's a father passing it on to a son four times. One Egyptian dynasty lasted 150 years. That's a long time for a dynasty. David's dynasty is the longest single dynasty in the history of the world. It lasted 400 years. So only 400 years. The covenant failed. I mean, the Davidic line does not... The, the, the Davidic line does come to an end. Israel is taken into exile, right? So God's promise failed. No. The Davidic line continued up until Luke 1 when it introduces Jesus as the son of David who will reign. The line of David's offspring was never rejected. The Lord did not go back on his choice. You are a Christian today because God gave David a throne that lasts forever through the person of Jesus Christ. Application Number next one. <laughs> application for the non-Christian. This is my last one. Application for the non-Christian. Christianity is unlike any other religion. Christianity is unlike any other religion. In ancient times, we know. We, we know this from, from historical and archaeological records. In ancient times, we know it was common for kings to build their gods a house. 
a temple. When they built the temple, the priest of that god would come with a blessing from that god. When King Tutmos in Egypt, he, he built his god a temple, and the priest came with an oracle of blessing that said, and, and I quote, Since you've built my dwelling, I will establish your throne unto distant days. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We have one after another after another of examples of this exact thing happening in history. But in the Bible, it didn't go like that. This is radical. God is saying, I'm not going to let you build my temple and then you think my blessing comes from a result of your actions. My grace is not contingent on your actions. All religions are not the same. They say, build a house for me and I will bless you. I'm not the same as them. Their grace is conditional. My grace is unconditional. I don't want you to slip into the common belief of your day, David, that this is how I work. I will bless you, David, not because you are good, but because I am gracious. I will save you non-Christian, not because you are good, but because I am gracious. <laughs> Repent, dear one, and come to this gracious God who is unlike any other. Father, the grace you put on display in that passage has dropped us to our knees. Your covenant with us in Christ has promised forgiveness of all sins. We can't find one sin you've not forgiven. What grace. <laughs>